You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome back for another week of a sermon series that we have been in for uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, If you're tuning in for the very first time here this morning, the sermon series that we are in uh, is entitled Reform. Reform. Uh, One of the things that you will find, uh, at least uh, we have found in sort of practicing the Christian faith and in following Jesus, is that nowadays it's really fascinating to watch the different expressions of Christianity out there and to see how many expressions of Christianity align with Jesus, but on the same token, also those that seem to struggle to align with a person of Jesus. There were a number of different reforms that Jesus made to the faith and the religious and the spiritual practices of his day that, if you pay attention, you will still see alive and well today, reforms that didn't take, that didn't last very long. We talked about this uh, several weeks ago. Uh, Probably chief among them is the reform that Jesus tried to make to our relationship with God, where Jesus was always trying to shift us from a rules-based relationship with God to a grace-based one. This was what's known as law versus gospel. Over and over again, Jesus was saying, yo, 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 like it's not, it's not about the rules, it's not about the do's and don'ts list, it's not all of that that makes you right with me, it's the relationship, it's connection, it's how well are we uh, staying in communion with one another. And yet, you step into many churches today, and legalism is alive and well. Uh, there's a number of different other reforms that Jesus made. Jesus reformed the way in which we read Scripture. He reformed the way in which we ought to see and treat people who are different from us, who believe differently than us, think differently than us, act differently than us. We talked about this last week. Another big reform that Jesus made was trying to move faith from something that only existed uh, sort of cerebrally in our lives, a cognitive exercise, to something that was actually practical, something that actually engaged uh, your hands, your feet, your very livelihood. And so the whole goal of the sermon series, again, if this is your first time uh, here this morning or if you're tuning in for the very first time to this sermon series, uh, check those out if those sound interesting to you. But uh, the whole goal of this sermon series, the whole hope of this sermon series is to make sure that the Christianity that we are practicing actually has the Christ in its name, that the, the, the version of Jesus that we're following is the one we see embodied in these very stories, not some manipulated or outdated version that someone else gave to us at one point or another. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to build off all of those reforms and we're going to talk about another one, another reform that Jesus made at several points during his ministry, one of the other big reforms that Jesus tried to make to the way in which you and I understand about faith, our relationship with God, spirituality, you name it, was in regards to the topic of sin. And a shudder goes over the crowd. Can we do a bathroom break and just run out to my car? Um, Sin, for those of you who are new to church or new to sort of re-engaging church and faith, uh, sin is the term that Christians have used uh, ever since, well, forever, uh, to sort of categorize and describe and define the behaviors, actions, mindsets that are not um, 
uh, not appropriate in God's eyes. The, these are the things that uh, disconnect us from God. They sever and they hurt and they harm our relationship with God, with ourselves, with other people. And I want to say something about this particular topic as we get started, okay? Is that okay? Some of you are like, you have the microphone. Of course it's okay. Um, one of the things that I've observed about this topic of sin is that it carries a lot of trauma, it carries a lot of weight, especially for some of us who grew up in deeply, deeply religious homes. And I think one of the th reasons why that is is because as a pastor, one of the things I've observed is that almost always human beings do one of two things on this topic of sin. We either take sin way too seriously, so this is the brand of Christianity you've been exposed to, these are the Christians and the overly zealous believers you've been exposed to who are hyper-scrupulous with their own behavior. It's all about do's and don'ts lists. It's all about what you're allowed to do versus what you're not allowed to do. I'll give you a sampling of this. I went to a private Christian college in Indiana, and one of the rules that we had to abide by was there would be no dancing on school premises whatsoever. Not even one of these. None of it. Why? It's sinful. Why is it sinful? Because, obviously, dancing leads to inappropriateness, and so we're just going to cut it off right at the source, and so no dancing. I had to sign a contract when I entered into the school that I would refrain from dancing, but I broke it. Um, so you got that. You got this version of Christianity over here. You got this version of Christians. Maybe this is a, the hyper-religious grandmother in your life or whomever in your life who's always obsessing about the rules in their own life, and they're always prescribing a bunch of rules to you. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. However, you've also got another flair of Christianity, and I think this is another one that's sort of gaining some popularity, gaining some steam. So you've got uh, Christians who take sin too seriously, and you've also got Christians who don't take sin seriously enough. This is um, the sort of spirituality, this is the version of faith where it's just kind of like, well, you know, God knows my heart and, you know, God knows what I believe and so it just doesn't really matter. Like, I'll just, whatever, it's cool. Or it's the sort of, uh, the fancy word for this is moral relativism that's creeping into a lot of the ways in which we think about faith and religion and morality. Moral relativism is just a fancy pants phrase for uh, truth is defined by every person and every, it's all relative. So what, what, um, what you define as right or wrong may be different from me, might be different from them. And so we're all just going to sort of make our own rules. We're going to make our own. So like what, this feels right to me, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this way. This feels wrong to me, so I'm not going to do that. So we're all just sort of following our own individual compasses. And here's what I have found. As someone who has probably dabbled a little bit in each, Neither of them work. Neither of those extremes work. Neither of those extremes will make you closer to God. You can follow all the rules. I don't care. You can follow every single rule anyone's ever prescribed to you as to what it means to be a good Christian. You can follow them to the T. You can follow them to the letter. And what you'll find is because Jesus is after a relationship, not after a robot who perfectly sort of checks off every single to-do list, you'll find that you can do it perfectly all the way down to the letter and not feel any closer to God. And the same is true for the opposite extreme. Some of you know this. Like, some of you know this. Some of you have done this. You've tried this. You've tried the path where you're just, like, 
Maybe you got burned out on faith or burned out from like a hyper strict parent or someone in your life. And so you're like, you know what? I'm doing whatever the crap I want and I don't care what people say to me and I'm just going to find it by myself. Like I'm going to be my own sort of compass. I'm going to do what's right and do what's wrong and just sort of like how it feels. And you are just as confused as you were before. I think it was Timothy Keller who said it this way. He said, one of the things that Jesus does is he helps us understand that you can actually alienate yourself from God by breaking all the rules or keeping every single one of them perfectly. This is what made the religious leaders so upset. This is what made hyper-religious people so offended. Then how do I get right with God? How do I know what I'm allowed to do versus what I'm not allowed to do? And so I think all of us here today, if you spent any time in church, maybe you've spent a little bit of time, some of you a lot of bit of time, all of us have different understandings and different questions, and we've been told different things in regards to what is sin, what qualifies it as sin, and why, what it really, why it matters, why it really boils down to is because I think at the end of the day, what every single one of us want to know is we want to know what are the types of things that draw me closer to God, and what are the things that I'm doing, or maybe I don't even know that I'm doing, that are hurting and harming my relationship with God. I want to know those things. And so again, the whole goal of this sermon series is not to sort of belabor what you've been told, what you heard. But it's again, to get back to finding out, that's fine, but what does Jesus have to say about it? How does Jesus define sin? What qualifies as sin? That's what we're after. So, if you want to follow along, go ahead and uh, use this moment to go ahead and grab your Bibles or grab your smart devices. If you're tuning in from home, feel free to use this moment to do so as well. And go back to John chapter 8. Go back to John chapter 8 uh, as we sort of uh, dive into our scripture passage for today. Here uh, in John chapter 8, you are encountering the iconic moment that uh, is Jesus interacting with these religious leaders who found a woman caught in adultery. Raise your hand if you've heard this story or some variation of this story before. Most hands in the house are up, I'm sure at home, same for you. This is a really, really classic, uh, famous story in Jesus' ministry, whereby uh, they are sort of, uh, some religious leaders caught a woman, found an adultery, we don't have any other context, and they bring her to Jesus, looking to Jesus to fulfill the law, the rules as to what you're supposed to do if you ever find someone committing that type of sin. And so where are they getting this from? They're getting it from Leviticus chapter 20. In Leviticus chapter 20, it says very, very clearly, very, very cleanly, very, very black and white. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And so if we had to like sort of guess which tribe these religious folks are coming from, they're coming from this tribe, right? They're the folks who probably take sin, well, they take it very, very seriously. In fact, so seriously that they're willing to kill for it right? So they bring this lady to Jesus, and once again, why Jesus continues to be the most captivating and amazing and awe-inspiring person, uh, and at the same time, so very, very frustrating and offensive to hyper-religious people is because what does Jesus do in this moment? He shows her grace. He shows her compassion. He breaks the rule and gives her love and mercy instead. And so here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do with this story. Actually, we're not going to bounce around all over scripture today. I want to stay right here in the story, and I want to break it down piece by piece. Because I think what's happening here in John chapter 8 
is Jesus is doing something bigger. He's doing something very particular. He's uh, showing grace and compassion to this woman, and he's correcting uh, those religious farts. But he's also, uh, at the same time, at the same time, making three moves. He's making three really, really big moves to help us understand what is sin, what qualifies as sin, and what are we supposed to do when we find ourselves stumbling into it. Okay, three moves, the first of which encountered, uh, we encounter in verse 7. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go there. In verse 7, uh, the religious leaders, they bring this woman to Jesus. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus, it says Jesus stood up again and said, all right, we'll get started. You guys want to do this? Great, let's do it. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So I, I know you guys, I know, I know the way you like to operate, so everybody take out your spiritual report cards and show me all of your A pluses, show me all of your perfect attendance, show me all that, and anybody who's got a perfect record, you get to go first. Ready? And go. The first move that Jesus is making here is in response to the question of who. Who is a sinner? Who qualifies as someone who is broken God's ideal relationship, God, God's ideal rules and patterns and disciplines for a relationship? And the answer is everyone. It's like a less fun game, uh, game show of like Oprah. Like, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Don't for, we didn't forget about you. Sinner for you as well, right? It's sort of like Jesus in a moment, in a moment, in response to the question of who actually is a sinner, who is a saint. Jesus levels the playing field, erases the categories, and says there is no such thing as this sort of binary between, oh, that's a sinner, that's a saint, that's a good person, that's an evil person. Every single one of you, every single one of us, has this blend where this odd cocktail of sinner and saint, light and darkness, good and evil. So I got to thinking about that uh, this week. I got to thinking about this in my own life. And I think what happened when I really started to sit with this is two big implications rose to the surface for me. That if, I, if that's true, if that's true that every single person in this room, out in the world, is a mixture of both, then there's two implications. Number one, I am not allowed to treat anybody in my life as all one or all of the other. It's so tempting to do that. It's so tempting to do that. It's so tempting the people in your life who you admire, the people you look up to, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a parent, someone who can just like, in your mind, I can do no wrong, to treat them as all saint actually is super, super dangerous. Why? Because the one time they slip up and they cut you off in traffic, you're like, huh, you think you know somebody. <laughs> some, of you have had this, some of you have had this happen. You've had a mentor, someone you really looked up to in life, or maybe it was a celebrity or a writer and some big moral scandal came out. And because you placed them on such a high pedestal, they make one single mistake and your whole worldview comes crashing down. Well, what's true anymore? I don't even, what's the meaning of life? I don't really even, you put them so high, you put so much stock in their virtue, their goodness, their saintliness, that the moment they showed you one ounce of their sinnerness, it all came crashing down. And the same is also true for the people in your life who you have just totally categorized, you've totally labeled as sinner. 
or maybe you don't use that language. Maybe you're just like, ugh, I just don't like that person. I have nothing in common with that person. We don't see anything. I, I, we are in completely different tribes. I have nothing to do, nothing to say, nothing to hear from them. I'm not allowed to do that either. Why? Because what I'm doing in that moment is I am discounting, discrediting, and I'm devaluing the saintliness that, whether I want to believe it or not, does exist in them. The goodness that does exist in them. And I guarantee if you hung around those people long enough, you'd see it. But that's part of the reason why we don't, because we don't want to see it. I'd rather just keep them in one nice little neat box of someone I never have to deal with. So the first implication for my life was the unfortunate sort of realization that I'm not allowed to judge people anymore, which um, was not fun. So uh, I had to sort of recalibrate there, and I also had to start recalibrating myself. If that's true, that every single one of us, you, me, everybody, is a mixture of sinner and saint, good and bad, light and darkness, then what that means is I need to stop obsessing all the time when I'm sort of engaging and I'm sort of evaluating my relationship with God. I need to stop obsessing over the question of like, oh, was I a sinner or a saint today? Was God, was I good for you today or not good for you today? Those are not helpful questions. Instead, I'm asking a very, very different question, that if both of these things, both of these natures are living inside of me, a much healthier, a much more faithful, a much more helpful question is instead of asking, am I one or the other, it's which of them was I feeding today? Which one have I been feeding lately? Which part of me, which, was it, has it been the light side, the dark side, the sinful part, the selfless part? Which one have I been giving more power, control, and dominion to lately? Some of you are like, that makes sense, but like, I don't actually know how I do one or the other. So this is just a list to get you started. This is a list to get you started. What I know from my own life is that when I am allowing my spiritual nature, so uh, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He talks about his own battle with both of these competing natures. He's like, I, I really want to do this, but I find out that I keep doing what I don't want to do, and I keep doing what I hate doing, and ugh. So go and read it for yourself. It's like a nice, it, all the literature teachers uh, hate it because it makes no sense grammatically. But it makes sense if you read it on the whole. Anyway, but he's pointing out that we've got like, these two uh, natures sort of competing for control within us. On our best days, on our healthiest days, the way we feed our spiritual nature is the list on the left-hand side. As awkward as it might be, as uncomfortable as it might be, I practice honesty accountability, confession, discipline. Those are the only ways that my, those are some of the sort of ways to get us started where our spiritual nature has the ability to grow and take form and become bigger and a more powerful part of who I am. And especially when you compare that with the list on the right-hand side, you begin to see very, very quickly how the opposite can happen as well. You want to feed the sinful part of you? You want to feed the selfish part of you? Practice the things on the right-hand side. Keep everything a secret. You do something wrong, you do something slightly dishonest, you're dabbling a little bit of hypocrisy, keep it a secret. Don't tell nobody about it. Nobody. Or if someone calls you on it, deflect. Distract them. Oh, uh, well, um, you want to grab lunch later? Like just, just sort of change the subject. Or diffuse responsibility. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I know you said that what I did was painful and harmful and offensive to you, but like, it was because you weren't understanding what I was saying. It's because it was a, you, you misheard, right? 
or the classic one, it's pride. It's walking around every day thinking you don't need nobody's help, you don't need other people's help, you got this, you're strong enough, you got enough willpower, you don't need nobody. You want to feed the sinful part of you, practice those. And it's kind of like just basic math. What you feed grows, what you starve dies. So friends, the very first thing I want you to hear very, very clearly is this sort of, I think what Jesus is trying to reveal to us is Jesus is trying to reveal the truth that uh, when it comes to the conversation of who, it's just not helpful to spend the rest of your life kind of trying to figure out, all right, I think they're a sinner. Mm, Definitely a sinner. Um, Instead, look at ourselves and see what part of ourselves are we feeding because they live in all of us. Move number two occurs a little bit later. So move number two actually occurs in verse six and in verse eight. So uh, the second move that Jesus makes is not only in uh, relation to the answer to the question of who is a sinner, but what? What is sin? What, what qualifies as sin? So in verse six and verse eight, there's this uh, sort of like weird moment uh, uh, where Jesus uh, is like writing stuff in the sand. Did you hear that a couple moments ago? I went Sally was reading. He's like doodling in the sand. Seriously, like the fifth grader part of me was uh, wanted to believe that Jesus was just like doodling self-portraits of himself, like just sort of like, <laughs> um, and like the religious leaders walk over and go, <clears throat> shh. But he does something. We don't know. We're never told. Doesn't say, um, maybe that is what he drew. Uh, we don't know. We don't know uh, what he wrote. But what we do know is whatever he wrote in response to their accusations and their calling for execution leaves them very disgruntled, disappointed, and then they walk away. And so what I have to believe, and what we can interpret from that, is that some way, somehow, in the writing of the sand or in something Jesus said, Jesus defined sin for them. Jesus gave a new definition of what qualifies as sin. The end result of that whole interaction is in response to the question of what is sin or what qualifies as sin, Jesus is making another really, he's making a really powerful another really powerful move here, and he's declaring very loudly in front of the religious authorities that the person, the only person who can define what type of behavior, what type of actions is sinful to God. It ain't religion. It is God himself. The only person who gets to define what behaviors, what thought patterns, the things that we do and don't do are offensive to God. The only person who gets to define that is God. It's not the overly religious person. It's not the hyper-legalistic person in your life. It is God and God alone. And so again, play out the implication. Play out the implication. If that's true, then what that means is More often than not, you're going to run into a lot of church folks. You're going to run into some Christians sometimes who get bent out of shape and get offended by stuff that actually, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that offensive to God and vice versa. And vice versa. I'll explain what I mean. Here's my first example. So my first example of this, of uber-religious people getting hyper-bent out of shape about stuff, um, and just wondering if it, is, if it rivals where that sort of falls on God's list, uh, is people who live together uh, before they get married. So uh, as a pastor, this is uh, one of my favorite parts of my job. One of my favorite parts of my job uh, is premarital counseling. I love it so much. I force so many awkward conversations, and I watch people blush. It's so fun. <laughs> anyway, some of you are like, I was thinking about having Kyle marry us. Nope. Um, 
And one of the things that I know from those conversations and I know from my own experience, so I, again, I grew up in a private Christian college, so what do you think they were saying about marriage and saving yourself and all of those things? And I want to be super, super clear about something. I'm not saying that doesn't have value. I'm not saying that doesn't have value. Um, but what I am saying is I've done this job long enough. I've lived life long enough to know that for most couples and most relationships out there, it's just not as black and white. It's not that simple. For example, in my office, right around the corner, I've sat with people who have explained economic realities to me, um, familial realities to me, insurance, uh, health insurance realities to me, that when I hear them, I'm like, dang, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. And I'll tell you the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, th- about three or four years ago, I was in my office, and uh, the, the f- first session, homegirl came out guns blazing. And she was like, listen, after my uh, last fiance turned abusive uh, the moment that we started getting uh, closer to my wedding day, I said to myself, I don't care. My next relationship, I'm going to figure out who that dude is. And the only way you figure out who that dude really is is when you see him before 6 a.m. That's when you really get to know a person. Hair jacked up, dragon breath, all of it. That's real marriage. Daggummit. She said, I just, I don't know, what, Kyle, what you think or whatever, and I, I, don't, I, I care what God thinks, but I had to know. I wasn't going to get abused again. I was not going to go through that. I just, I had to know who he was. I'll never forget, I walked uh, to my car that afternoon, and I, was, I just said to God, just very honestly, I think you really understand and empathize with that, don't you? Maybe this is just one of those moments where we here in the church, and so, not, hopefully not here at the peak, but the church writ large has just had a really bad track record of getting so bent out of shape about things that maybe at the end of the day, Jesus, they're just not even close to the top things that you're concerned about. Which, for the record, if you want to do more digging and more uh, discussion uh, and more research yourself, go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 on your own. Even Paul admits to this. Paul's giving relationship advice, uh, and he goes at one point, he's like, now, I don't have like a direct command from God on any of this. This is just me kind of spitballing a little bit, so take it or leave it, right? So even Paul in Scripture is sort of saying, this is not as black and white. Relationships are never as black and white as we would like to make it. So if it's true that uh, the only person who defines sin is God, not the church, not the most religious person you know, then number one, it's going to, that means that there's going to be some things in the church that we get bent out of shape about that God is not as offended by, or maybe not even offended by at all, and the flip side, and vice versa. The other implication for that, that also means, and this is where you really need to pay attention, that also means that there's a lot of things in the Christian life and faith that we downplay. We don't think it's actually that important. We don't really, it doesn't really matter that much to God, and it actually matters a whole lot. It matters a whole lot. Go and read the Sermon on the Mount if you want more examples of this. But in Matthew chapter 5, you'll see examples like this. Jesus says things like, You have heard uh, that your ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to a judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with somebody, resentful, bitter, holding grudges, you are subject to judgment. 
Verse 27, you've heard the commandment that says you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman or a man with lust has already committed adultery with her or him in her, his or her heart. Friends, what you're going to find in this relationship with Jesus is there's going to be moments where Jesus moves the line back regarding what qualifies as sin, and then there's moments where Jesus moves it up where you've been spending all of your time going, well, I didn't, like, I haven't cheated on anybody, so, like, I'm fine. But Jesus is like, yeah, that's not, that's not actually where I want you thinking. I want you, I've, but where's your heart been lately? Where's your mind been lately? I didn't, well, I, I've, I've never got, I've never done anything criminal. I've never been fired for, you know, malpractice or whatever, uh, so those sorts of things. And Jesus is like, yeah, that, yeah, that's, I, don't, I don't care about any of that, but tell me about what's going on in your mind and how tempted you've been recently to do little dishonesty, little white lies here, and how much you've lied to yourself and lied to your spouse. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Human beings are obsessed with the action. Jesus seems a lot more preoccupied with the intention. Where's your heart at right now? What do you truly want? Again, what part of you are you feeding? So that's move number two. Move number two that Jesus makes is uh, just really saying very loudly and clearly that God and God alone is the one uh, who defines what qualifies as sinful, harmful, hurtful to our relationship with God. Thirdly and finally, the final move that Jesus makes uh, is in regards to the question of how. So um, what I love so much about the way this story ends is Jesus shifts from talking to the religious folks and the uh, hyper-legalistic followers and believers, and he starts talking to the woman directly. And I love this interaction. Uh, you can see it on your screens now. Jesus says this. He, he turns to her, uh, and he says, uh, he stood up again and said to the woman, uh, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them stay back and condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he is trying as best as he can to give clarity around what you and I are supposed to do when we do fall into sin. And he's doing two, he's kind of like, this is the third move, but it's like a two-pronged move. The first thing he's doing is he's, he's trying to get her attention off of all of the people who have been condemning her, shaming her, making her feel guilty and regretful and all of that stuff. He's trying to pull her eyes, pull her attention away from them, deliver her from them, and at the same time, invite her to something different. Invite her to a different lifestyle, to different behavior, to different actions. Friends, when you and I leave this place, and later this week when you feed the sinful part of your nature, just know Jesus has no desire nor any use for you hating yourself, beating yourself up, or uh, trying to spend the rest of your life performing a version of yourself that can somehow make up for that past mistake, okay? In some regards, I think we in the church, we overcomplicate it. We make it seem like there's this formula like, okay, you sinned. Okay, well, step seven is this, and then step eight is this. When in reality, oftentimes, I think the relationship with Jesus is just like any relationship. When you make a boo-boo, when you make a mistake, when you do something wrong, when you do something not in alignment with who you want to be or who Jesus is calling you to be, what do you do? You do these. You do these three things. Number one, 
you apologize. Just like any relationship, you apologize. In your own way, in your own words, you apologize. Then do an inventory. Do the, do the second step, the needed step of asking yourself, okay, so like, I know I did this. I wonder why I did that. Maybe I was just tired, maybe I'm lonely, maybe I'm stressed, maybe I'm frustrated, maybe this is going on. Okay, I, I've now sort of identified a couple of factors that sort of trigger me to react that way or to, uh, to behave in that way. And then thirdly and finally, I'm gonna do something new. I'm gonna do something different. Why? Because if we know anything about human nature is if you do what you did, you're gonna get what you got. If you do what you did, you're gonna get what you got. You keep doing the same things, hanging around the same people, living the same way, doing the same sort of behaviors, you're going to get the same exact result over and over and over and over again. One of the things I love so much about Jesus is Jesus is just the gentle voice that says, I'm going to show you a different way. I'm going to show you a different path. And I'll close here. I'll close here. Friends, if you don't hear anything else I say to you this morning, please, for the love of God, hear this. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. When you do something later this week, later today, uh, later this month, and you let yourself down, you let God down, and you're made aware of it, I want you to stop thinking of those moments as like God as this really rigid, strict teacher showing you your spiritual report card. Kyle, just want to show you this. You failed me seven times this past week. Not sure if you were paying attention, but here they all are. Wham, 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 and wham. I want you to stop thinking that way. And instead, I want you to start thinking about uh, those visits from the Holy Spirit as like a doctor's report. Anyone had like an annual physical lately? You don't get graded at your physical. Like your doctor doesn't go, okay, great job. So overall, we're going to give you a 74. Like, that doesn't work. Like, it doesn't work that way. Your doctor just sort of gives you honest feedback. Your doctor is just kind of like a, a mirror revealing the truth to you about the patterns of your life. So the doctor typically goes, you're looking really good. Health here, here, here. Blood pressure looks good, yada, yada, yada. And we also have some areas of concern. If you keep pounding cheeseburgers for the rest of your life, like, it's just not going to end well for you, right? This is not the way, this is not a good path to good health. That is the way uh, God speaks to me. It's taken me a long time to figure that out. It took me a long time to realize that God was not this judge in the sky, angry for every misstep I made, but this genuinely loving, compassionate father who just shared these things to me, revealed these behaviors and actions to me because God knows how harmful and destructive they are to myself, to the people around me, and to this relationship with him. Again, if you don't hear anything else I say to you today, please remember this, that whenever you have those moments where, again, maybe you're being confronted by someone else or you're being confronted by God about behavior or actions you've been doing lately that are just not in alignment with Jesus, Jesus is never the person who says, if you keep doing this, I will leave you. Jesus is the type of God who says, please stop doing this because if you keep doing it, you'll leave me. Do you hear the difference? Jesus has never been in my life. I got a lot of people I'm still uh, recovering from who have said that to me. You better stop or I'm going to leave you. That's never Jesus. 
Jesus is that gracious, loving, gentle voice that says, just, I'm asking you to stop because if you don't, you'll leave me. You'll wander. You'll drift. And so, friends, one of the things that I want to make sure that we celebrate here today is not only uh, the gentleness, the loving graciousness that God demonstrates towards us, but the incredible message of the gospel that at any point, at any point, if we want to make a turn, which, by the way, that's actually what repentance means. Okay, I know repentance is another one of those words that carries some trauma for some of us in religious settings. You want to know what, it, if you actually study it, if it goes down to the boil, go down to the root, the word repentance simply means to turn, to make a shift. You were doing it this way, wasn't working, so you made a shift, you went a different way. There is no message more central to the gospel, more central to Jesus' message than this. If ever you find yourself in a place where you're doing those things, when you find yourself doing those things, committing those actions, guess what? You can turn around at any point you want. Do I have to, like, perform a bunch of, like, Hail Marys and, like, different things like that? Nope, you can turn around right now. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.